We're going to continue on in Matthew 4 today. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 4. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have extras. We can get you one. If you need help finding Matthew 4, just ask somebody next to you. They'll be happy to help you. Um, we're going to continue on. And we're going we're gonna to cover um, a relatively short section of verses today. And it's not one that I think I've ever heard a sermon on. Um, but I think, I think that there's interesting things in here that are worth knowing. So we're going to read verses 12 through 17. So read along with me. Uh, now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that... I pray that you would make this word alive in our hearts. I pray that you would shine the light of the gospel, the light of Christ, on us. And I pray that it would, it would reveal things to us. And I pray that it would lead the way for us into your glory. I pray that you would speak through me to say what needs to be said, and you would speak through your word and, and uh, the witness of others who have, who have looked upon this light and seen it for what it was. I pray, I pray that that witness, that testimony, the testimony of that light, of your glory, your gospel, your goodness, your grace, your truth, I pray that all of that would just be unleashed onto us this morning. I pray that you would, you would bless this time and do some work. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week uh, I was in Mississippi with, with my family on a retreat with our Japan mission team. Uh, we got together in a very rural area of the country. It felt like we had to drive uh, until we found the middle of nowhere, and then we had to keep driving for about another hour. Um, at one point, we got off the paved roads. Like you turn off the paved roads and onto these country roads that were just dirt and gravel. Uh, as, and as we were driving, you could see like the dust cloud being kicked up behind the van for like a few feet as we're just like pressing further and further into, I don't know, the Mississippi wilderness. Um, and we're going further and further until we finally arrive at our destination. We're able to unload our clown car of two adults and four kids and all our bags and probably whatever animals had latched onto us on those dirt roads. I don't know. Like it, it felt like we were going forever. And I was just like, I'm a little worried about because we've never been down here. Um, we were staying in this big red barn that was in the middle of uh, Mississippi, Mississippi farmland. This is a big chunk of farmland. Uh, and it felt pretty isolated. Um, we got, we got there, we got settled in, 
met everybody, had dinner, sat down. Um, and, and after that had happened, we had to get our stuff situated for, to put the kids to bed. So I go out to the car, and I open the door of the barn to go out to the car. And as soon as I shut the door behind me, I felt, I looked out, and I felt like I was engulfed by darkness. I've been camping dozens of times, so like, I, I feel like I'm kind of used to being outdoors at night, but for some reason, when I stepped outside, I was surprised a little bit by how dark it was, because we were out in the middle of nowhere. There was no glow from a nearby city, no street lamps, no other houses, no buildings nearby. There wasn't anything. And I had just gone from this furnished, warm, busy, well-lit building full of people to a cold, quiet, lonely, pitch black, nothing. At least that's, that's how it felt, like nothing. Um, not quite, though. I could see the boundary of where the light came out from the barn windows. But I could see where it dissipated. Like, you could see the boundary where the light just stops. And then from then on, it's just like dark. And, and it was a thick kind of blackness. It's like you could feel how dark it was. Have you, ever, have you ever felt that before, that kind of feeling, like you could feel how dark it is? I don't know if you ever have. Um, it's, it's interesting. And I think it was because of that contrast from having just been inside and everything's cool. It's like you're in a normal place like this, and you walk outside, and boom, it's just like, wow, it is dark out here. In that moment, the, the primary thing providing me with, with any kind of frame of reference, with any kind of comfort, I guess, in that situation, was the light that still emanated from these windows behind me. And I could also see the stars in the sky. Those informed where I was. They provided me with a sense of place. And they enabled me to get through that situation safely. Like, I'm able to get to the car, come back, everything's cool because of that light. But if I had wandered too far away from that light, I'm pretty certain I would have been hopelessly lost in just this thick, black darkness. One of the most common metaphors in the entire Bible uses light and darkness to communicate something to us about the nature of, of God and about the nature of man in his sinful state. The absence of God's presence is described as a state of darkness. And it says that this is the state in which the world lives, in this state of darkness because of sin. It actually says that not only do, do people live in this state of darkness, that they love the darkness. They love that sin. They love hiding away from God's presence. And out there in the darkness, men become lost. They get confused about what's around them. And they stumble around searching for something that they think will satisfy whatever it is they think they need. But ultimately, all their work leads to nothing because 
they've become so lost inside this darkness that they can't find a way out. And it's into that darkness that's in the world, that sin that's in the world, that the light of Christ shines. So, this is, this is what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about how Jesus is going to begin his ministry. Last week we talked about, Caleb talked about how uh, Jesus had gone out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And ultimately, after he got baptized, he goes out there, he faces this trial, and he's triumphant. He, he faces Satan, he, he confronts him with the word of God, the truth, and he, he does not succumb to those temptations. And so he's coming out of the wilderness now, beginning his ministry. And that's where we pick up here. Actually, a span of time, um, like almost a year that takes place between uh, him being in the wilderness in temptation and what we're about to talk about. Uh, and that's, that's covered mostly in John, um, in the first three or four chapters of John. You can read more details about that. So, so some things have happened. Um, and he's begun to teach during that time. He's begun to uh, perform miracles and this sort of thing. And people are beginning to know who he is. He's gone to Jerusalem already once. Um, and he's cleansed the temple. So he's getting a bit of a reputation. But now something happens that kind of changes the scenery, changes the, the players involved in Jesus' ministry. In verse 12, it says that Jesus heard that John, that's, that's John the Baptist, John the Baptist had been arrested. And so Jesus withdrew into Galilee. We, we know from other gospel accounts why John the Baptist got arrested. Uh, he, he didn't keep his mouth shut. Uh, he, he said maybe, I wouldn't say too much. He said just enough, but it was too much for some people to hear. Um, he offended a governor of the land by calling, calling him out for committing adultery with his sister-in-law. And as we'll learn later, John never gets to leave that prison. Uh, he's he's going to stay parked right there. And we won't talk about all that because we'll see more of that later. Um, but he's going to stay there. So things are changing. Um, now it's, it's kind of just Jesus doing this work. It's, it's moved on to him. The things that John the Baptist promised that he was going to come in and begin a new kind of ministry, this starts now. John fades away. Jesus begins. So Jesus then withdraws into Galilee. And, and don't get the idea that like, he's, he's afraid, I don't think, because he's not, he's not running away from imprisonment, I don't think. Um, Herod, the governor who imprisoned John, uh, was also governor over this region in Galilee. So it's not, it's not like he's leaving his jurisdiction or anything like that. Um, it could be that he's avoiding confrontation. Um, but, but ultimately, I think that the, the picture that Matthew paints here is that Everything that Jesus is doing, he's doing with great intent for the fulfillment of God's will. So Jesus moves into this region to fulfill God's will. He leaves Nazareth. That's his hometown. And he goes, it says, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Weird names. Uh, what are those? Can you write question time? You can answer. What, what are those two names? None of the elders can answer. Two of the tribes of 
Yeah, sorry, I'm trying to like help if anybody's like not on the same page. <laughs> uh, two of the tribes of Israel. So what comprised the 12 tribes of Israel? Like how did we get 12 different tribes of the nation of Israel? Uh, before Moses. Jacob, yeah, so, sorry? Yeah, sons of Jacob. So Jacob has 12 sons, uh, and, and each son becomes their own kind of division of Israel. And after he has his 12 sons, we kind of, just to kind of briefly recap the story, it's relevant to this. Um, Jacob and his 12 sons end up being forced to move from the area that they're now kind of living in, this region, down to Egypt, because there was a massive famine, and they couldn't, they couldn't stay up there. They had to leave. So the story of Joseph is about all, how all that happened. They go down into Egypt, and they live there for 400 years, and they go, they go from being a family of like 70 people to a family of like 2 million people. They turn into a nation while they're down there. And then the story of Moses talks about how God leads them up out of Egypt, and they come back to this land that had been promised to their fathers by God. And... Moses is the one who does that, but he doesn't ultimately make it there. He dies. But jo Joshua takes over, and God says, we're going we're gonna to conquer this whole land. It's filled with people who are committing horrible idolatry, doing things that are just unspeakable, killing their children for the sake of heathen idols and all these other things, just horrible stuff. He said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get rid of the people that are up here and we're going to inhabit this land. So the story of Joshua is how they do all that, but they don't complete the job. They, they don't do everything that God told them to do. They kind of, they make just enough room to move in, and then they're like, all right, we're good. But they don't, they don't get rid of everybody who's still there committing these horrible acts of idolatry. And God warns them in advance, he says, if you don't do that, then they're going to turn your heart away. You're going to have people actively working against me and you in your midst, and that is going to have an effect. But they didn't pay attention. You can read about that in Judges 1. It specifically calls out Zebulun and Naphtali, and say, uh, it calls them all out. But them, they're named, and it says, they did not completely conquer the land. And so their region of Israel is in the northern region. I don't have a map. I keep thinking it would be nice if I had a map. We can talk maps later if we need to. <laughs> They're in the northern region uh, next to the Sea of Galilee. And what happens over time is they become greatly influenced by the people that live in that region, by the idolaters. They begin to uh, marry with those idolaters. They begin to build families with those idolaters. And, and so they begin to drift away from God. And that continues on and on and on for hundreds of years until God says, you know, something's got to be done here. We can't keep, can't, I can't allow you to keep running away. And so he sends an army, the Assyrians. And the Assyrians come in and they take out that whole region and they, they put in some of their own citizens, some of their own leaders. And now that place is becoming less and less like Israel. It's looking less and less like Israel. That's why even in the Old Testament, you can see in uh, verse 15 here, uh, Isaiah, by the way, is the one who we're quoting when we talk about this prophecy. Oh, yeah, he says it. Uh, he says that this is Galilee of the Gentiles. Even though this is technically in Israel, they're calling it a land of the Gentiles because 
They never really fully got rid of everybody else. Then this army comes in and inhabits the land with them. And as much as they tried later to overtake that region and make it just for Israel, it never really happened. So this land is pretty much just mixed. It's a bunch of different kinds of people from all over the place. Uh, and it hasn't really maintained any kind of Jewish identity. There are Jews living there, but, but they're, not, they're not living like they should. So... Because of that, it's not strange then when we hear things, the reaction of the Jews who are in Jerusalem, when they hear about Jesus being from this area. Nazareth is kind of situated close to this area. When, when they hear about Jesus coming from there, they say, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? That's in John 7, 41. They're, like, they're kind of shocked by this thought that Jesus would come from that place where it seems like God's presence had kind of withdrawn. The idea of a Galilean Messiah seemed ludicrous. I'm quoting uh, John MacArthur, his commentary. He said, when, when Nicodemus tried to convince the Pharisees that Jesus should be given a fair hearing, they answered to, and said to him, you're not from Galilee also, are you? Uh, if you search, you'll see that no prophet comes from Galilee. So there's this, there's this corrupt area, and now we're talking about how Jesus is essentially, he, he comes from that area, but he's also taking specific steps at the beginning of his ministry to go into this area. That means that they were some of the first people to get a look at the Messiah. Some of the first people to see this promised fulfillment of this new covenant, the salvation. It wasn't Jerusalem, the city that everybody would have expected. It was Galilee. It wasn't the, the pure Jews, the smart Jews but the ones that everybody else would have considered mongrels, downcast, mixed, in Samaria and Galilee, they had the honor of seeing Jesus first. I think that that is really cool. An, an area of the world that had been a symbol of rebellion against God for more than a thousand years now becomes the special recipient of God's grace. Christ comes bringing light to a people that had been trapped in this deep kind of darkness. It says that they were dwelling in the region and shadow of death. Some translations, I think, read deep darkness. Like literally that they are in the shadow of death. Christ comes to them and brings light into that darkness, into a situation where they couldn't find a way out. And, and into a situation that they couldn't escape from on their own, he goes there. I think that that's, that's really cool. And I think that, that that doesn't reveal itself immediately, you know, just reading those verses. And so when you read those, those few verses, I was thinking, man, what are we going to talk about here? Why is it important? Why is it important that that is a fulfillment of prophecy? We'll talk, we'll talk about that here in just one second. Um, so this, this fulfillment then, the meaning of this, 
I think it does two things. I think that it demonstrates, first of all, God's sovereignty in this. The fact that these, this series of events even occurred is nothing short of miraculous. Because the prophet who we're quoting here, Isaiah, he wrote down a promise eight centuries ago, eight centuries prior to this event, that spoke of the arrival of Israel's Savior, their Messiah. And he said that he was going to be a light to the Gentiles in the midst of darkness, specifically in this region. And here we see that Isaiah's word is fulfilled in Christ. So what Matthew, I think, is trying to show us is that none of this is coincidence. None of this is coincidence. The reason he keeps saying, look, look, this prophecy, it happened, and it was fulfilled. This prophecy, it happened, and it was fulfilled. And you're going to see that all throughout Matthew. I think that part of the reason is to say none of this is coincidence. God planned all of this. God knew the plan from the beginning. And he told Isaiah to write it down all those years ago. And then almost a thousand years later, he brings it to pass, showing us that he is truly what he says he is. He's the beginning and the end. And that his word stands and it doesn't change. And his purposes are accomplished. It shows us just the fulfillment of this, that God is sovereign. So that's one thing. I also feel like it shows us God's grace. Knowing now everything that we know about this region, we know that they, they were not a deserving, you wouldn't think that they were a deserving people. They weren't deserving of this light. They weren't deserving of what Christ was bringing for almost a thousand years, even more than that. They, this had been a region of the world that was just in blatant opposition to the will of God for over a thousand years. Even when Israel moved in, they didn't do the job. They adopted the practices of everybody else. It never fully realized the plan of redemption, of salvation. But now this area, which is just as, as broken as any of them, is now the recipient of this message that Christ is bringing them. That is a picture of grace that though they sat in this willful kind of darkness that they put themselves in. They said, we don't want the light. And they got so deep into darkness, they couldn't find their way out. And now Jesus is bringing it to them anyway. That's God's grace. And the kind of light that he brought is life. You see all kinds of descriptions of, of the light of Christ. And I'm going to read a few of them. So if you go to... John 1. John in particular has a lot of this kind of light and dark language. Uh, But John 1, verses 4 and 5. He's speaking of Jesus here, John the Apostle is, and he says, In him, in Jesus, was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So this, this light that he compares to life, life in the midst of darkness that overcomes the darkness, that's one way in which Christ is bringing light into this place. You also, excuse me, see it in, I think, verses 
8 through 12, he says he was not, oh sorry, he's talking about John the Baptist, saying that John the Baptist was not the light, but came to bear, bear witness about the light, about Jesus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So he brings, again, this, this true light. It, it refers to him as being the truth. You also see this in John 3, verse 19. And I mean, we could go everywhere for references to this, but I've just pulled out a couple. In John 3, 19, he says, This is the judgment, that light came into the world, Jesus came into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So he, can, he sets up a comparison here, saying that light is righteousness, light is goodness, light is, is everything perfect. And that darkness is the opposite of that. So when Jesus comes, when it talks about him bringing light, he's bringing life, he's bringing truth, he's bringing righteousness, he's bringing goodness. Uh, in Luke 2, 30 and 32, it talks about Jesus being a revelation to the Gentiles and a light to them in the midst of darkness. Um, and in uh, 1 Peter 2, 9, it talks about how through Jesus, we are invited into God's marvelous light. Christ is bringing a new message, a life-giving message, the truth, the gospel, into an area that previously did not have any hope. And just like God did at creation, he's, he's stepping into the darkness through Christ and proclaiming again into a dark situation, let there be light. But in this case, we get more than like photons. It's kind of a nerdy you get more than photons, like you get more than, than physical light, you get the embodiment of all that light really represents. So in some sense, Christ is like the fulfillment of light. Does that make any kind of sense at all? Like this, this is what light is, Christ. We get God himself in the form of Christ. And he invades space and time, bringing light, Life and knowledge and glory and all of that gets to shine on us. And that's grace to us. What's pretty cool here, I think, and I think it's cool because of a commentary that I read that had great notes on it. Um, <clears throat> in verse 17, when he comes bringing that life, bringing that truth and all of that amazing stuff that, they, that people in the darkness need, in verse 17, it talks about what he began to preach. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have we heard that before? Recently? Who was preaching that message? John the Baptist is preaching that message. So he comes and says the exact same thing. I'm going to jump over to Matthew Henry's commentary, and I'm going to read quite a section, but I thought it was just so good. <laughs> Um, he says of this, of Christ preaching this same message, the subject which Christ dwelt upon now in his preaching, and it was indeed the sum and substance of all his preaching, was the very same that John had preached upon in chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For the gospel is the same for substance under various circumstances. 
The commands are the same. The reasons to enforce them are the same. An angel from heaven dares not preach any other gospel. And he will preach this, for it is the everlasting gospel. We ought to fear God and by repentance give honor to him. Christ put a great respect upon John's ministry when he preached the same substance that John had preached before him. By this, he showed that John was his messenger and ambassador. For when Christ brought the errand himself, it was the same that he had sent through John. Thus, God confirmed the word of his messenger. The son came on the same errand that the servants came on to seek fruit, fruits that bring about repentance. Christ had rested in the presence of God the Father. He could have preached sublime and divine and heavenly things that should have alarmed and amused the learned world, but instead he pitches his tent here upon this old, plain text. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not only that, he preached this first. He began with this. Ministers, we must not be ambitious of introducing new kinds of opinions, framing new schemes, or coining new expressions, but must content ourselves with plain, practical things, things that are near to us, even in our mouths, even in our hearts. We don't have to go up to heaven or down to the deep for topics or any kind of special language for our preaching. As John prepared Christ's way, so Christ prepared his own way and made way for the further discoveries he designed with the doctrine of repentance. If any man will do this part of God's will, if he will repent, then he will know more of God's doctrine. Christ preaches this message often. Wherever he went, this was the subject. Neither he nor his followers ever reckoned it worn threadbare, as those would have done that have itching ears and are fond of, fond of novelty and variety, more than that which is really edifying, which is really life-giving. Here we have to note that that which has been preached and heard before may yet very profitably be preached and heard again. But then it should be preached and heard better and with new affections. This doctrine of repentance is right, and it is an unspeakable privilege that we should be given the opportunity to turn from sin and death and turn towards Christ who gives us new life. There's a lot in there. But I thought that that was just fantastic. I don't know if anybody else thought that. Sorry. Um, but this is fantastic. I think that I, I'm really tempted to do this. And I feel like maybe a lot of us here are in particular because of maybe the kind of minds that we attract by our preaching or our style. Um, we're very kind of intellectual. And we want to, to see new things. And, and I don't, that's not entirely wrong. That's not that impulse to want to know more of God. That's not wrong. But it's pretty cool here that Jesus, after more than, more than a year of John the Baptist preaching the same thing, Jesus comes onto the scene and you figure 
Everything is new. It's been promised. Everything is new because of him. And we want to hear what he has to say. What is he going to say? He could say things that would just blow your mind. And in a lot of cases, he does later on. But the first thing that he says is what John's been saying all along. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Martin Luther said at the beginning of the 95 Thesis that started the Reformation, referring to this verse, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It isn't just something that you do once. It isn't a truth that you kind of affirm, you nod your head and you say, I get it, moving on. You never move on past this truth. That's what Martin Luther was saying. And I think that that's what Jesus is saying by again preaching the same message. He's saying, you don't move on from this. This is the beginning. This is everything. You repent from your sin, from that darkness. The darkness that we've put ourselves in willfully, that we're sitting in. You repent of that. When you see the light coming, you look towards that and you see it for everything that it is. Life, righteousness, goodness, safety, security. You look towards that and you run towards it, is what Jesus is saying. And so, this to us, we are Gentiles. This to us is grace. This message. And for us, it should never get old. And so no matter where we are, we can constantly be pursuing this light. Looking around at the darkness that is everywhere else, and forsaking it, and saying, no, it's not worth anything. Jesus is worth everything. And so you keep pursuing it. You keep repenting. You keep moving forward with the full knowledge that Christ is coming, and his kingdom is at hand. And there's only a limited amount of time until that darkness overtakes those who willfully submit themselves to it. We don't want to do that. We want to hear the word of Christ, and we want to respond. So that's what we're going to do right now. Let's pray.